Amen. We are dealing with Satan bound for a thousand years. And that's an interesting, interesting passage. I've been waiting to, to preach this one, to tell you the truth. And uh, tonight we'll only be dealing, I'm going to read the first six verses, but we're only going to deal with the first three of chapter 20. And um, this will help us. And uh, I'm going to give my personal view first. Then I'll give an alternate amillennial view. I am amillennial. I'm going to, I'll give an alternate amillennial view. And then time permitting, we'll look at historical premillennialism. Uh, historical premillennialism is not the same thing as dispensationalism. Uh, historical premillennialism is an orthodox view, can be found in the, the early church. Um, it's not one that I happen to hold to, but I believe that you could actually uh, hold to our confession and hold to that view because it wouldn't be out of line uh, with chapter 31 and 32 of our confession, at least I don't think it would be. And so, um, you know, I will try to introduce that would be the second part of the message. But the first part of the message, I want to be an exposition of um, verses one through three of chapter 20 in the way that I believe them to be uh, from an amillennial perspective. And I'll even point out that not all amils agree. And maybe you say, what is an amil? We'll tell you in a moment, okay? <laughs> Find out. If you don't know what that is. Okay, let me just read to you verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it up and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but there'll be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. So I look forward to dealing with verses four through six too. But I think the, the key, because obviously maybe the thing that really stands out to you there is this is the first resurrection. There's a number of views as to what the first resurrection is, but I think it makes sense. I'll just put it in your seat thought in your head. When you compare the first resurrection with those that have that, that have the second death has no power over them. And so I think that's kind of a key uh, to what the first resurrection happens to be. Anyway, observations on verses 1 through 3. First of all, which is at the context, uh, chapter 19 ended uh, with um, what we called the Battle of Armageddon. All of God's enemies are defeated. And then chapter 20 opens with the thousand years and the, and the, the binding and, and, uh, of Satan. And then... After we got through verses 4 through 6, you notice again, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth. And so 
What we actually seem to have, in my opinion, is the Battle of Armageddon again. You say, well, how could it be the Battle of Armageddon again? We had it, and then we have the thousand years, and now you're telling me the Armageddon's here? And that's because I don't believe that uh, Revelation is chronological. And so I think what we have are two different pictures. All of these are visions. You know, the, the Battle of Armageddon is a vision that shows the destruction of um, those that oppose Satan. And, and they're given to us as armies. And then we have the thousand year period that we're going to talk about tonight. And then we have the next part again. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And I'll come out and deceive the nations, because he was bound that he couldn't deceive the nations. Now he will do that. Uh, and uh, Gog and Maybach, Gog and all, and all of that. I think it's Armageddon once again. Uh, some will disagree. If we do get to historical premillennialism, we will see that they actually read that historically. They say there is the Battle of Armageddon. There is a thousand year period. The thousand year period will end with one more time of uh, apostasy and great destruction. So they have two times of prophecy, uh, two times of great destruction. But some observations from one through three now. That's just a bit of an overview of the whole passage. Oh, it ended, by the way, in verse 11 with the judgment of the last day, if you notice. Verse 11 through 15. That's the judgment of the lost and the, they're casting into eternal fire. An angel. Kind of an interesting way to put it. I saw an angel. We've seen angels before. Sometimes they're called great angels. Sometimes they're called mighty angels. Sometimes they're called strong angels. This angel is just called an angel. And what would we make of that? What, what, what's really being told to us? It's an angel with a mission, uh, an angel with a job, and I think really the point that we'll be seeing here is this is an angel that's been empowered by God to do what he does. It's not the angel's might, it's not the angel's power, because really no angel could really do that that we know of. It would have to be the Lord strengthening them to do it. Um, Michael the archangel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses and did not rebuke him in his own power, but said the Lord rebuke you in um, Jude 9. And Daniel 10 is an interesting passage, which actually talks about a vision of a battle. And uh, Daniel's appointed messenger, we are told, was detained, and that would be an angel, and was detained 21 days before Michael and possibly even uh, the pre-incarnate Christ uh, defeat Satan. So I think the angel's not called mighty or great to show that it's God that wins the victory. When God determines to punish Satan, Satan has no power to fight back. And then second of all, I believe the binding of Satan that it talks about here must be seen as symbolic and not literal. It was accomplished by Christ's resurrection and uh, his ascension into heaven, his victory, and uh, of course his bringing in of the, the new covenant as we know it to be in its full and final revelation. But there are physical words that describe what's happening here to this supernatural spiritual being. We see a key, a chain in his hand, you know, and a pit, a bottomless pit. And then we see action verbs that uh, go here too. Seized, bound, through, 
and sealed, okay? And so we have to ask, what's the purpose of this? The purpose is given right in the passage itself. As you notice in in verse number three, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So all of this binding has to do with the fact that he isn't able to deceive the nations any longer. And you look around the world and you say, well, there's, there's a lot of deception. And, and there is, yes, there is a lot of deception, and we'll deal with that. But before the coming of Christ, his death, resurrection, and ascension, entire nations were blinded to the truth of God. They worshipped demons or themselves, and there were very, very few Gentile converts in the Old Testament. Very few. And so this binding, Satan is not allowed to deceive the nations like he was before. He's bound uh, so that he cannot deceive the nations. He cannot stop the advance of the gospel worldwide. As God wills for it to go forth, it does go forth. It goes forth. And interestingly enough, you can actually follow the history of the gospel as it goes forth in its various places, often uh, taking a, a westward movement you know, across. And if we were, and it's very, very hard to tell where you are in history right now, but the places that seem to be having the greatest uh, amounts of conversion are the atheistic and and, um, even Eastern religion countries of uh, like China and, and moving across that way, even Korea and places like that. And God has often used war uh, to actually bring the truth to people too. Um, like in Korea, uh, there was a great, um, a great coming to Christ at the beginning of the, the 1900s, but uh, with the Korean War that has taken place and had taken place and still really isn't over in many ways, uh, many American servicemen have gone over there, I'm sure with mixed results, you know, so, but there have been Christians that have gone over there too. And some uh, American servicemen, have act- and, and British too, and others, have actually, that are Christians, have actually gone back as missionaries there. And they've seen a great number of conversions. China, which has done their very best to close the doors to the gospel uh, so that it would not get in, has been totally unsuccessful. And it's said, we don't know this to be fact, but it's said that there probably are numerically more Christians in China than there are in the United States. Okay, but how do you count underground churches and such like that? So that one's hard to say, but we do see that progression. And so nations are no longer closed. Uh, Russia did the best they could to close the gospel. But I remember Ray Warwick, one of my friends, and a few of you may know him, um, lives in Tucson now, uh, used to be part of our church here. Um, He went over to Russia um, and took uh, a mission trip there and did some street preaching in Russia after the wall had come down and it was allowed again. And he said an old grandmother came up to him afterwards and, and said, uh, I remember hearing the gospel before the revolution. It says, and now before I die, I'm hearing it again. He said, so, so, you know, so maybe 70 years without the gospel or at least being hidden underground and now the gospel spread again. 
So that's the kind of thing we're talking about, about not being able to deceive the nations. Maybe for a little time and in a little place, but when God decides to send the word, he sends the word. And Satan's also bound in another way, too. He's bound so he cannot totally deceive the nations like he actually did uh, in the old covenant days. Satan's bound in another way so that he cannot assemble a worldwide conspiracy to attack and persecute the church. Can't do that. Now, Armageddon, different story, isn't it? But we're talking about what is happening now. Can't do that. Persecution is always localized. There there hasn't been a time where the entire world is being persecuted as Christians. And uh, even in the Bible, as you can read different places. No, uh, such was not the case. The seven churches uh, in Revelation, some were suffering persecution while others were doing fine. In the Roman times, um, persecution was sporadic. It would be here, it'd be there, it'd be here and there. Even to this very day, uh, such is the truth. Uh, even in a place like China, for instance, there are places where uh, you, you could preach the gospel, you're not going to go to jail. There's other places where you could be in very severe trouble yeah, by doing that very same thing. And so God restrains persecution. Satan, if he could, would make sure that uh, all of us are in serious trouble all of the time in fear for our lives. We'd be those uh, martyrs under the altar being beheaded. Uh, That would be Satan's desire and what he would do if he could. If Satan could, he would be very glad to, to, to kill every Christian. But by the providence of God, he's restrained and cannot do that. He's put on a chain, so to speak, so that he cannot totally deceive the nations and so that he cannot muster the forces of persecution and destroy the church. Okay, and Armageddon is the best he can do. And whether you take it literally or spiritually, uh, it doesn't end well for Satan. Okay, doesn't end well for Satan. He's absolutely defeated and uh, can't, cannot to do what he'd wished to do. We'll deal with Armageddon more when we get to verses 7 through 10. Now, the loosing. Okay, he's bound. And then he must be released or loosed for a little while or other translations say, for a little season. Okay. And there's two ways to deal with this. I'll tell you the way that I deal with it first, but I'm not so convinced that this way is right uh, that I would do more than just tell you it's a good possibility. And then I'll give you the other view, which actually is more popular. Okay. The loosing. What does that mean, that Satan must be released for a little while? after the thousand years is ended. Uh, There's two ways to deal with this. Our our post-mill friends deal with it more along the lines of of what I believe. That doesn't mean I'm post-mill, but I just think they've got a point that they make that's a pretty good point here. What they say is, um, what we need to do is we need to see this as a long period of time as compared to a short period of time. And that fits, the reason that convinces me is it fits the motif of the book of Revelation. We see this constantly, this, this kind of thought process going that way. Christianity is long. It continues. The gospel goes forward. And Satan's time is always short. We're going to look at a verse in just a few moments that actually says that exact same thing. 
Christianity is long, it continues, the gospel goes forward, and the verse we're going to look at says, Satan's time is always short. The lies, the apostasy, the degradation, these things always come to an end and they die, along with their teachers and their practitioners, usually only to be replaced by others that uh, may have the same kind of problems, but, uh, you know, they're, they're different folks, you know. So that's what I think is the case. I think what we're doing is we're dealing, we're dealing with a thousand years, basically, as compared to a number that we've seen over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. We've seen it three different ways. Um, contrasted with a short period of time, relatively so. Uh, three and a half years. How many times have we seen three and a half years throughout the book? Well, we've seen it a lot of times because when you realize that sometimes it says three and a half years, sometimes it says 1260 days, which is three and a half years, okay? Or when 42 months, which is, guess what? Three and a half years. Three and a half becomes a, a very important number in the book of Revelation. And when you compare it to a thousand, it's kind of like that, you know? It's nothing, you know? Um, comparatively speaking, of course, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, but we're talking about in the book itself as it comes out. Uh, no one has ever lived to be a thousand years old. Methuselah didn't live to be a thousand years old. He lived the longest. He was 969 years. And so what we see, and of course then, then after Methuselah, um, precipitously the age of man drops. And we, we see that on Wednesday night. Uh, we look at that, and we looked at it in the genealogies, Genesis chapter 5. So this, this is uh, what I think is probably a good explanation about the little sea. He is, he is released, he's loosed for short periods of time. And the thousand years is the gospel age and the gospel going forth. And so obviously you're not, not going to take it as a literal thousand. It's this new covenant age. And uh, there was a lot of frenzy, I've been told, and from reading histories, uh, you know, uh, around certain time periods. And as they approximated a thousand years from the time of Christ, there would be, well, a great excitement, you know, uh, as you would expect there could be. So these are the things that uh, we're talking about here. A long time as compared to a short time. And the chain and the binding become the point. However, I will say, give, say this. The, as best I can tell, uh, the majority of Amil's um, hold to a different view here. They do hold to the fact that um, uh, Armageddon will take place after the Gospel Age, the thousand-year period. And so what we have actually taking place here is the final rebellion and, um, and a, a period of time, an actual period of time, because I, I actually believe Armageddon ends uh, the age that we're in too. But this is an actual period of time that uh, there's intense persecution. Satan is allowed to, to do, really, and maybe I'll, I'll be blunt with you. It, it well could be my reaction against dispensationalism that doesn't like this view because they have their seven-year tribulation that's so terrible, okay, and so horrible. And maybe my overreaction against that, but a lot of our mills just believe in a very short period of time where there is that intense, horrible, terrible persecution. Satan is allowed to run rampant, you know. 
And, um, and they can even say that anti-Christian government, the beast, and anti-Christian religion, false prophet, have both been destroyed, already destroyed, but Satan is allowed free reign, and he goes about in a terrible way, destroying, destroying Christians, destroying Christians, and would destroy them all if it wasn't for Christ's return. And I, I see some problems with that. Um, for one thing, um, it would be very, you know, we're looking for the blessed hope. We're not looking for the blessed destruction. You know, and so that, to me, that's part of the problem uh, of what we would have with that particular view because Christ really couldn't come today under that kind of view or even come real soon. Soon is a relative term. And the argument would go back the other way. Well, wait a minute. Uh, we just got out of a time where the world changed almost overnight. You know, this is, this is the counter argument to that. They said, just, just think what happened with COVID. You know, you went to bed, you got up, and all of a sudden you couldn't go to work. You couldn't, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. There was nothing you could do. And, and it wasn't just the United States. In fact, we, we were actually uh, better off than some places uh, I talked to Jeff Oliver, my friend up in, in Placerville, and he had happened, he and Jane had happened to be in England because her father died, and so they were there taking care of affairs, and COVID hit. And guess what happened? They couldn't come back. And then, it wasn't just that they couldn't come back. Uh, they had uh, restrictions, and they followed the restrictions. Um, they, they had restrictions like you wouldn't believe. They're only allowed outside, you know, uh, basically an hour a week. I mean, sorry, hour a day, hour a day, where they could be exercised. And their exercise could be walking up and down their street on their block. They weren't allowed to go to another block because they were trying to contain everything within. Uh, same problem with shopping. They had certain times that they were allowed to shop. And it was very heavy-handed, um, much more than even what we endured. So, yeah, I, I will admit, things can change very, very quickly. And, and my friend Sam Waldron, um, I've talked to him about this very point, because he does believe in the little season and the, the great, um, uh, the great uh, persecution that will take place right before Christ comes. Um, he said, you, you know, he said, well, Steve, it, it might be as short as 10 days, you know. We don't know how long it's going to be. You know, it could be really, really short. And that's what he was talking about uh, before COVID ever hit. Um, you know, if it's three and a half years, that'd be a long, long time. <laughs> to me, that would be a long, long time. But uh, the little season, I think we have to compare it to the thousand years. And, um, whether, and then some would say, well, yeah, this is true. Satan is released so he can gather his forces, but he is not able to do the persecuting work that he desires to do. He's still restrained from that. So, um, you got to take your choice, I guess. And you know when we're going to find out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's when we're going to find out, yeah. I don't think we're going to settle this one uh, here on the earth, you know. And um, you just have to really just trust God and believe in him and, of course, uh, look to him. Now, the passage I was talking about that actually goes along with this passage and let me read the passage to you again, the first three verses. Um, An angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. 
And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan. So now we have four descriptions. We have a dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. Uh, turn to Revelation 12. And in Revelation 12, which really almost without controversy, um, in, in all views, be they pre-mill, uh, historical pre-mill, post-mill, or ah-mill, uh, would all agree pretty much on the interpretation of Revelation chapter 12. That this is the, the coming of Christ, Satan wanting to stop the coming of Christ, then Satan hoping to devour the child as soon as he's born, the child taken up to heaven, protected by God, of course, and, um, and then he turns his wrath against the church and uh, those that are the followers of Jesus Christ as it says at the end of the passage, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so that's basically what's happening. And, and that would be the little season, which could be happening during this particular time, or it could be a time right near the end. Okay, so chapter 12, verse 9 is where I'd like to direct your attention. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan. And the, the same four things are being said right in the order that they were said in chapter 20. And then the deceiver of the whole world. Okay. So now we have the deception that's going on too and what he desires to do. So um, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, uh, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Compared to long, right? His time is short. Compared to long. And so there I think we see um, something that should really tip us off to what's happening in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, and the deceiver, the deceiver of the whole world, who will deceive as much as he can, of course. Now, the great chain, let me just say this about the great chain, because I think that needs to be noted here. The great chain is obviously uh, not a literal chain. You know, it's not a literal chain with a literal key, uh, and, and all of these things that are going on like that in a very physical way. John Bunyan of Pilgrim's Progress fame, I think, uh, understood this. Um, and it really wasn't even talking so much in an eschatological point of view or last time's viewpoint. He was talking about Satan on a chain. And uh, during this time period that we live in, Satan is on a chain. We can think of it that way. We can think of the providence of God keeping him from doing all that he wants to do, he's restrained and he's held back. And Bunyan pictures it this way in Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, there's a path, a celestial highway, taking you to the celestial city 
which is heaven, during the course of your life. And Christian looks ahead at the path and sees that there are two lions that are prowling and waiting to destroy him. And he's on the path, and he has to walk that way. There really is no other way to go. And the lions are there on both sides of the path. And uh, he's afraid. It's a scary sight. It's a horrible sight, but he's going to go forward because he must. And so he does, and as he gets close, he notices that both lions are on chains. And they're on chains, and they can't get on the path. The chain is too short for them to get on the path. And try as they might, and roar as they might, and fight against the chain, they can't do it. As long as he stays straight on the path, they can't touch him. You know, It's scary, it's terrible, and it's horrible in some ways, but in reality, he's safe. You know? Well, get off the path you're eating, stay on the path you're safe. And of course, it, the symbolism is it's God who's chained the lions, who, <coughs> excuse me, who symbolized Satan. And so the main takeaways, I would say, during this new covenant time, the angel binds Satan so that he cannot do what he wishes to do, bound by the providence of God. The gospel goes forth, and it goes forth exactly to whom and to who, and it goes forth exactly where God wills. Persecution still happens, still does. I mean, one, a couple of the seven churches in, a, in Asia that this letter was directed to were suffering persecution, and one was promised it was going to be a, a very difficult persecution. But it says 10 days. Now, I don't know if that's why Sam Waldron said it may only be 10 days. Maybe that's where he got it from. Um, I didn't ask him. But it does say that you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. You know, so maybe that's the thought. It could be as short as that. But... Um, at any rate, we know that uh, the persecution is restrained and limited, and Satan himself is restrained, only allowed a little time, or we could say a little ability, to carry on his desired deceiving work. And I'd say one more thing. Uh, I, I believe, personally, that, that Satan is very, very pleased to let people deceive themselves and not even have to try to deceive He's very pleased to let men in their natural depravity just go forward and be his servants in that particular way. And of course, there are so many that do that. Okay, back to Revelation 20. Just a little bit more, and then we'll partake in communion tonight. Um, a thousand years. Like I said, there, this really becomes the point of what people do as far as uh, their millennial position. And then they take that position and uh, work through with it. There's premillennialists uh, that believe that Christ will come before the millennium and set up a millennial kingdom that will last for a thousand years. There's postmillennialists that believe, in a nutshell, uh, that um, the kingdom is... is uh, spiritual in that way, but then, then there's some thoughts of the postmillennialists. They say the gospel will go forward and go forward and go forward. There'll be success, success, success. More and more people converted. Eventually the entire world, not every single person in the world, but uh, Christianity will actually be the main religion 
and Christians will be the majority, not the remnant minority uh, that we've always been. And so that would be a post-millennial view. And then uh, Christ will come once uh, those things have been accomplished. And so the golden age idea is the idea that the gospel will be so successful that uh, practically every other false view will have been obliterated. Not like what we see today where Christianity is basically mocked in our own country. Okay, it would be the opposite of that. And then there's the Amil view, which is wrongly thought of, maybe even badly called Amil. I, I call myself an Amil a couple of times. I don't even like that term. I don't usually say that I'm Amil. Um, I believe in realized eschatology, that it has been fulfilled, it's coming to pass, the purposes of God are being fulfilled. We're not looking for a literal thousand year period or even, uh, you know, it's symbolically a thousand year period, but it doesn't necessarily have to be massive revival and, and uh, humongous amounts of conversion. You know, it's, it's a realized eschatology and we live in the eschaton, we live in the last days. We're living in the last days right now. There are two kinds of premillennial, and this is where I'll end tonight, just with a short little primer on this. Uh, historical premillennial and dispensational premillennial. I won't deal with dispensational premillennial because of time. We'll, we'll, we'll do a quick overview of that next time. But historical premillennial may be something that you don't know too much about or haven't heard about very much. It, it should be considered a, a uh, an orthodox position. Uh, Armageddon takes place at the second coming. The beast and false prophet are defeated, and Christ sets up his physical kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And um, I've, I've had fun with that a little bit, because I, you know, I think we need to not take ourselves so seriously in eschatology that we're battling each other and arguing with each other. But so are our brothers, and a lot of times um, people that come to the Reformed faith uh, often their eschatology changes, usually changes from dispensationalism. What I've found just experientially in the guys that I've known and talked to over the years, a lot of times what will happen is, um, and this is not a cut on historical premillennial, but they'll move from a dispensational position to a more orthodox position of how to interpret the scripture and uh, become historical premillennialists. And then it's always kind of fun to ask them, well, what does the millennium actually do? Say, well, we don't know, but what it actually does, but it's there. You know, so that we have to believe in it. And that's more or less kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke that uh, gets bandied about here. But they do believe the beast and the false prophet are defeated. Christ sets up his physical kingdom on earth for a thousand years. And most do take the thousand years to be literal. Okay. Whereas there may be a few that say it's long as compared to short. So Christ in his glorified body returns with his saints who are also in their glorified body. Christ sets up his kingdom um, and, um, in, in Jerusalem and, and reigns on a physical throne. They usually don't have all the trappings of a temple and a red heifer and, and all the other things that, that go along with dispensationalism and, and animal sacrifices and things like that. Most historical premillennials would, would rule all of that out. But Christ is sitting on his throne there are living human beings who are not clothed with immortality yet during this period of time. And there is still death, although most people 
lived quite a long time. And they would use Isaiah 65, 20 through 25 as proof of that. You can look that up later if you want to. Um, that would be the premillennial, historical premillennial passage talking about that with a literal rendering. So the world is not totally converted during the golden age. Humans live with the exalted Christ and his glorified saints. Evil still remains um, during the millennium, but it's greatly suppressed. There still is injustice, there still is violence, there still is disease, there's still sorrow, there's even death. But by and large, these things are, are nothing like what we have today. It's a pleasant, great place to live. Christ is the king, and he rules and reigns. And Psalm 2 literally comes into fulfillment as the kings of the earth bow and pay homage to the king of kings. But of course, there has to be an end. There has to be a way to get to the eternal state, and there is. Satan is loosed for a little period. Um, the unconverted forces gather themselves together. They don't see verses 7 through 10 as Armageddon in a recapitulation. They see it as a new rebellion at the end of this literal thousand-year period of time where Satan is allowed to take the unconverted people that still remain and, and have not, uh, have not uh, bowed the knee in reality to Christ, and God destroys them with fire from heaven. And that's the end. Now we go to the final judgment. So what we actually end up having um, in a chronological sequence is Armageddon, Christ's return to destroy his opponents and rule in a physical kingdom for a thousand years, or at least a long time, and then another rebellion. It all ends in, in a very bad way, and the destruction that leads to the final judgment. So, you know... Um, this is a pretty old view. It goes back, you can find it in the early church. They were called Kilius uh, in that particular day, which is kind of a, uh, a Latinized form of the Greek, actually, of a thousand. And so um, they don't appear to have been the, minor, uh, the majority, but it was a view that was held. And so they believe in a physical reign of Christ on earth. And the main problem that they have is there must be two resurrections. You have to, because you've got the glorified saints coming back. They've been resurrected because they're glorified. And now you've got to take care of everybody else that dies during the millennial period. They'll have to be re resurrected uh, separately. And the Bible doesn't uh, talk that way. Um, you could use the thing, this is the first resurrection, way back in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. But, you know, that doesn't really fit. It, it, uh, the, the language doesn't fit for two resurrections. So there's a first, but um, so you can, see the, you can see the problems that exist there. But every, every view has problems. I'm just admitting that. And so most historic pre-meals probably could subscribe to our confession. But um, that whole bugaboo about two resurrections would have to be worked through in their own mind because... Our confession talks about one. So that would be the biggest problem with it right there. So dispensationalism, you probably know from the Left Behind series and, and such like that, and most uh, popular evangelicalism. I'm not going to start to open that up tonight. Um, no reason to do that. I think we'd be going overtime to do that. So we'll pick up from there next time and then look at the post-mill view uh, next time that we meet.
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we talk about these things, we do realize that because we're talking about the future and it has not come to pass yet, we're talking about visions, we're talking about things that are being seen by the Apostle John and revealed to him and given to us. We know there are things that must be relevant for people in every time and every age, and they must be relevant to the, the first century Christians to whom this book was addressed. So Father, I pray that you just help us as we wade our way through such things, realizing that, um, Father, we may not have it all exactly correct. We may, even in our small number, find ourselves disagreeing on some points with one another. Help us to do so charitably. And we know, Father, that it will come to pass. We can see the big picture, and we can see it come to pass by your purposes at your time, according to the good pleasure of your will. Not one of your elect will be lost. All will be gathered in safely into the barn, and we know that all of the chaff will be gathered together for the burning. And so, Father, we must confess that, or we would not be confessing the truth. So, Father, help us to look to you, we really don't know, and we really couldn't say that we're the last generation, that Christ must come in our lifetime. We've heard that so many times, but Father, that's not what this is about. We can say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and realize that you will come quickly, or we will go to you quickly. And so, Father, we admit that, and we look to you, and ask you for your strength and help tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.